All right, everyone. It is uh, time for a good market update, and we're going to get into some of the things that we're going to be paying attention to uh, this coming week on our continuing series about the five stages of a loan. So first, let's just talk a little bit about uh, what our market conditions are. Uh, it is Monday, the 22nd of January, and uh, mortgage-backed securities are pretty flat today. Uh, they've been trading up um, as much as 10 basis points. Now they're trading flat, actually, um, actually right at zero, unchanged, uh, as we get to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. Um, you know, this week we're expecting some inflation data to come out uh, on Friday. Um, you know, I just don't get a, a sense that there's a a whole lot of anticipation about the report. Um, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of surprise potentially uh, coming with the report. So it feels like uh, the market is is responding the way they're expecting the report to come in, which is sort of as expected. Uh, they're looking for about two tenths, uh, two point seven percent, something like that. Um, and so that's probably where that number is going <clears> to <throat> come in at. So long story short, market is pretty flat when it comes to movement this week. Uh, again, the weather, uh, I think, just kind of has everybody on a little bit of a standstill when it comes to looking at new houses and doing all those sorts of things when it comes to real estate-specific stuff. I've gotten quite a few inquiries uh, that have started to pick up about different types of transactions. Um, we just closed a transaction uh, earlier today for an inherited piece of property. So we had a client who inherited a piece of property along with a sibling. And one sibling uh, saw the advantages of being able to keep the piece of real estate and keep it as an investment asset. Uh, the other sibling, not so much. The other sibling uh, was more interested in selling the asset at this current time to do something different with it. So we went through the process of helping these two individuals decide uh, how to fairly divide the asset, the process that you have to go through uh, to get that accomplished. Uh, one of the, um, the, uh, one of the <coughs> siblings who wanted to keep the asset needed to put some financing in place to be able to pay the remaining amount of uh, debt owed to the other sibling, uh, or in other words, to pay the other uh, heir to the property uh, their portion of the property that they were entitled to. So in this particular instance, I had uh, an individual had passed. That individual left a property with no mortgage attached to it to uh, their children, uh, so there's two children. So those two heirs to that property then had to decide whether they wanted to keep the property, sell the property, what they wanted to do. And again, one sibling did not want to keep the property. Um, the other sibling did. So I arranged for the sibling that wanted to maintain ownership of the property I arranged for them to be able to finance or do a cash out refinance or in other words borrow the amount that was owed to the other sibling 
borrow that amount against the equity in the property. So that sibling, that the, the sibling that maintained ownership in the property, did not have to bring money to closing to pay off the other sibling, uh, and was actually able to then get some additional cash uh, to do a few other things that they wanted to do while they were in there, getting that um, getting that asset uh, set in place. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. That was an opportunity for us to be able to get um, the asset into the sibling's name that wanted to keep it and turn it into an income-producing asset that they'll be able to benefit, uh, reap the benefits of uh, for many years to come. So uh, if you have somebody that's um, inheriting property or if you're advising a client that's inheriting property and or if you know anyone that's inherited property uh, recently and they want to sit down and go through what the options are uh, for keeping the property potentially, that kind of thing, that's when you'll want to reach out to us for sure. Okay, so that's the market update and how things are looking uh, today. Conventional rates are still hanging right around 7. Government rates are right around 6. So no big movement in rates. Uh, they've come down a little bit and got a little bit better, uh, but we expect that to continue as the year goes on. Okay, so we're at week 3, episode 3, as we're going through the five stages of the mortgage process. So in week one, we put out what the five stages are, um, and those are going to be application, pre-approval, processing, underwriting, and closing. In week two, we went through... Uh, is good to be with everyone and uh, let's jump right in and today what we're looking at is um, you know episode three uh, part two of stages of the loan process um, in episode one we covered the five main stages of the loan process uh, episode two we went into the first of those stages which is application and now in episode three, we're working on that pre-approval stage. We covered the fact that the very first step in part one is to get the full story um, with your application, your uniform residential loan application. It's very crucial to get the complete story. Now, let's talk about a couple of the big parts that we're going to be considering in that pre-approval stage. And obviously, monthly cash flow the amount of money that you have coming in and the amount of money that you have going out are going to be very important pieces in determining your eligibility. So I want to just briefly describe some of the sources of income or types of income that we typically run into. Now, of course, all situations are unique. This is not an extension of credit um, or um, a, a specific program uh, being addressed. These are general um, subject matter types within uh, the lending world um, that just make you aware of the types of income that can be used for different programs. So first type of income that we typically run into is income that's paid on a W-2. This is going to be typically um, a job where you think of a regular 40-hour work week. You have set hours. You come and go from a, uh, one particular place, um, and you fall into that category of worker that receives income on a W-2. So in that situation, we're going to expect to see pay stubs from that borrower, 
um, for the most recent 30 days uh, that um, support the income that we're saying is, is being paid on that W-2 uh, or is currently being earned per hour on that W-2. And so we'll get those matched up and in those cases um, that W-2 income we're going to get the most recent two years uh, of W-2s and pay stubs covering the most recent 30-day period. That's how we determine that that income is being earned currently. So one of the other sources of income that we uh, typically will run into is some type of variable income. And so when I say variable income in this context, what I'm really referring to is someone who's maybe a W-2 wage earner, but they have some variable component to their pay. So they may get bonuses. They may work overtime. They may have um, some portion of their uh, pay may be commission-based. Um, so all of those things are what we call variable or they add a variable component to the pay. So in this case, what you're going to want to do is make sure that we've got adequate documentation for the program that you're applying for. In most cases, you're going to have to have shown a history of receiving that variable income for a period of a couple of years to be able to show that it's going to be consistently earned. So that's not always the case, but a general rule of thumb. Okay, so the next source of income that we typically will run into is self-employed income. So self-employed income is when you own your own business. Now, you can receive income on a 1099. Um, for example, people in the real estate business are on 1099s or they're independent contractors with their broker. And so they are treated, their income is treated like self-employment income. So self-employed income, income that you're going to be responsible for paying the tax on as the employee and the employer, that's self-employed income. <clears throat> so that also involves, excuse me, um, if you <clears throat> have a family-owned business, if you work for a family-owned business, depending on how much ownership you may or may not have in the corporation and some other factors, that may be counted as self-employed income even if you receive a W-2. So that's the other source of income that we run into often is self-employed income that's from owning your own business. And then there's a couple of other sources of income or areas that we see income uh, out of, which is a fixed source of income. That's going to be if you receive disability payments, if you have VA disability or Social Security or you have a pension, something along those lines, um, and Social Security benefits. So all of those are that fixed category of income. And then there's another category uh, that's going to have some other things in there if you receive rents, dividends, child support, that kind of thing. So those are the five sources of income, W-2 wage earner income, W-2 with some variable aspect, a fixed source of income, self-employed income, and then other types of income like child support, rents, those kinds of things. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about what kind of liabilities or what kind of debts we're going to be looking at in this stage of the approval process. We've gotten a handle on what the uh, income sources are. Each one of those has to meet underwriting guidelines and be an acceptable source of income. Uh, and to go back to that for a minute, underwriting is going to have to verify or feel comfortable that that source of uh, revenue is going to continue for three years uh, after the closing date. So that's the, the kind of means test that they're looking at. So when it comes to the types of debts that they're going to be counting uh, in your qualification, we're going to start off with REO or real estate owned. 
If you remember, that's one of the sections of the application that we went over. It's section three. And if you have any properties that you owe mortgages on or have any outstanding debt on, or even if you own the property free and clear, you're still going to have uh, taxes, insurance associated with that property that's probably going to get counted against you from a cash flow standpoint. So uh, real estate owned debt is going to be the first category of, of, or type of liability uh, that we're going to be looking at. Now, the second type is installment loans. Now, a mortgage or real estate debt, not so much the taxes and insurance, but other types of mortgages uh, attached to real estate are installment loans or fee simple loans um, for the most part. But I'm really talking about a car loan, um, student loans, those types of things. Anything that you have a regular scheduled monthly payment to make um, and it has a fixed period. Uh, that's what we're referring to there. So we'll evaluate how much auto debt that you may have. Um, look at your student loans. If you have student loans, they're all evaluated a little bit differently depending on the program that you're qualifying for. Uh, so we'll evaluate all those. But that's what we talk about on installment loans, personal signature loans at the bank, that kind of thing. Next category is revolving debt. This is going to be credit cards, um, a home equity line of credit. I'm kind of going to consider in that REO or real estate owned section uh, that's real estate related, um, but they are uh, oftentimes with a revolving term, at least for maybe the first 10 years. So that that's, is a revolving debt typically, but that revolving uh, debt, we're really talking about credit cards. Um, and so you may have some other types of, re of revolving debt, but that's really, we're talking about department store cards, credit cards, that kind of thing. And then there's going to be a category reserved for items that you may owe a monthly payment on or you may have an obligation uh, to pay, but uh, it's not on your credit report. So when you make application, we pull your credit report. And remember in Section 2, we put your income on the application that you report. We pull in those debts or those liabilities from your credit report, and they populate the application. Well, there's a chance that there may be something that you're obligated on to pay monthly that's not reported on your credit, doesn't show up on your application, but you still have the obligation to report that information to your loan officer. So it could be that you made a purchase after the time uh, you had your credit pulled uh, or the transaction was started and not processed completely and it just didn't show up on your credit report but you were in the process or had recently obligated yourself, um, then that can happen from time to time. So let's say for example you purchase a car, it doesn't show up when I pull your credit report but you know that next month you're going to start paying a $350 a month car payment you need to provide the information for where you purchased the car, go ahead, let us know about that, we can get it on your application. So uh, that's another uh, area of, of liabilities that you need to look for. And then uh, there's also going to be liabilities that may not show up on your credit report, but that you may still have an obligation for. Those are going to be things like spousal support, child support, uh, those types of things. So. Um, that's also uh, got to be factored into your qualifying because if you have support obligations and those obligations are going to last for any length of time um, and we document ages of children and get divorce decrees and all those sorts of things to kind of document this, but 
there's any other type of support like that, it's going to be evaluated and underwritten according to the guidelines to see if it either has to be counted against you, if it's something that you owe, uh, or if you can use that as income if it's something that you receive. Uh, but in either case, it has got to be uh, dealt with because it's something that does impact your financial uh, situation. So again, those are the types of income and the types of debts that we're going to be looking for in that pre-approval stage um, to get an idea of where you're going to stand there. The types of income are uh, W-2, uh, W-2 with like a variable component, uh, a fixed sort of income, Social Security, that kind of thing, self-employed if you own your own business, and then other types of income like child support, uh, rent, those kinds of things. On the debt side, you're looking at um, any REO or real estate owned debt that you may have, installment loans, revolving debt, uh, items not on the credit report, and then other items that you may owe, uh, like child support or marital support, that kind of thing. All right, good to be with you. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. All right, so now we are at the monthly payment portion of the discussion. And so we're going through and we're talking about the five stages of the loan process. And we've gone through uh, the first stage, which is the application where we get the complete story. The second phase that we go through is the pre-approval stage. And that's where we're at now, which is um, uh, where we're gonna go through. We're gonna look and see um, what type of income we have coming in, what kind of debts we have going out. And basically your loan officer at this point is trying to find out is there a product here that this borrower is going to be able to qualify for in order to purchase a new home or refinance. But for the most part we're talking about purchasing a new home at this point. So once we've gone through some of the initial parts of that pre-approval, we've taken a full loan application. So we know the complete story of where you've been living and working for the last couple of years. Um, and we've done a little bit of analysis on your income to determine whether it's an acceptable source of income, that kind of thing. We've also looked at your liabilities that you have going out every month. We're going to be looking at your car loan and credit cards, student loan debts, those kinds of things. So we can get a handle on what your current income is and your current outgo so that we can determine how much you would qualify for to be able to make a comfortable, uh, a new payment comfortably. And now we get to this point of budgeting, monthly payments, and uh, and how your financial picture is going to look going forward after you get closed on this new transaction. So in this section and in this pre-approval section, there's really a couple of big concepts that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, the first thing is I want to make sure as your loan officer that you know and understand what comprises a monthly payment or what makes up a monthly payment. So oftentimes I have borrowers, even experienced borrowers, who will use a term like monthly payment. How much is my monthly payment? This is what I need my monthly payment to be. Uh, I can't go over X in my monthly payment. <clears throat> and so the first thing we want to make sure is when we're talking about monthly payment that we're actually talking about the same thing. 
So let's review very quickly what comprises a monthly payment. Now, someone else's definition of monthly housing expense or monthly housing cost varies a little bit. I'm telling you what the Shannon Wheeler Mortgage Team considers your monthly housing expense or your monthly payment. So when someone says, what's my monthly payment? That monthly payment is going to include everything except any homeowners association dues that are also due on a monthly basis. However, your homeowners association dues, if applicable, are also a monthly housing expense that we have to account for in your pro in your qualifying and in counseling with you on your monthly payment, your budget, so on and so forth. We're going to also want to include that because it is a housing expense. It's not like you can not have that homeowners association due and still stay in the property. So it has to be factored in. It has to be factored in from an underwriting standpoint. And we're going to factor it into our qualifying so that you as our borrower and our client aren't surprised by what your monthly expense is, even if it's not collected in your mortgage payment. So let's review what those pieces and parts are. The very first part of a monthly payment is going to be the principal and interest. Now, there are d different types of loans. Um, in this particular example and for this piece of the course, we're talking about a regular first mortgage, either conventional uh, government, but it's a regular first mortgage lien uh, in first position, simple interest. So we're not getting into any of the other uh, sort of strange variations of loans that you can have. In this particular instance, we're talking about what you would consider a straightforward sort of bank uh, type loan. So the first thing is we're going to have uh, principal and interest, and that is going to be just exactly what it sounds like. It is going to be the calculation of your principal and interest payback on your loan so the amount, amount that's due every month for principal and interest uh, will be calculated and you'll pay that back on a level 360 month term if you do a 30 year loan. And so that principal and interest amount, for example, if you finance $400,000 and you did that at 6.5% for 30 years, then that principal and interest calculation is $2,528.27. So if you take a $450,000 loan, you finance it at 6.5% for 30 years, that 25.28.27 is that principal and interest number. It's the amount of interest and principal that you will be paying every month for your mortgage. Okay, in addition to the principal and interest, which is going to be the same on every loan, that is what a loan is, right? I'm giving you money in exchange for payments in return. And so that principal and interest piece is going to be the biggest factor. <clears throat> in addition to that, you've got a few other parts of a payment that may come into play. Now, for our example, we're going to assume that you are, as the borrower, going to have an escrow account, or in other words, the amount that you have to pay every year to insure the property with homeowner's insurance, and the amount that you have to pay for your city and county property taxes to be able to maintain that property in your jurisdiction, those items are due annually. So you pay an annual homeowner's insurance premium, you pay an annual tax bill, but for the purposes of this example and for 95% of the mortgages that I'm going to create, 
those payments are included in your monthly payment in what's called an escrow which means when you write your check every month or you go online to make your automatic uh, automatic payment or your drafted payment then it's going to include your principal and interest which we covered but then it's also going to include an amount for your taxes and insurance now this is done because um, it's much easier for most borrowers to just pay one-twelfth of those amounts as they go throughout the year with their regular monthly payments than it is to remember to pay it annually and uh, it's easier than it is to pay it on uh, a lump sum basis so for a lot of borrowers if they can just break it out over 12 monthly payments it makes it a little bit easier a to stay current and remember but B from a budgeting standpoint it's a little bit easier so you're going to have your principal and interest which in our example of 450,000 that was 2528 but then added to that you're going to have that taxes and insurance amount so if your annual taxes are $3,600 a year then $300 a month would go towards your taxes and your payment if your homeowner's insurance was $1,200 a year then that's $100 a month so in your monthly payment you're going to have your principal and interest amount but then you're also going to have an additional amount in this example for your taxes and insurance of $400 added to your monthly payment so you're going to have principal and interest you have taxes and insurance the only other feature of a loan payment that you're going to want to be aware of and counsel with your loan officer about is mortgage insurance if you're required to have mortgage insurance that's another topic that we'll get into in another video but for the purpose of this discussion mortgage insurance is insurance that is charged by the by the lender um, or it's required that you get coverage by the lender in the event of the borrower's default and mortgages with mortgage insurance are always going to have less than 20% equity in the property so if you're purchasing a piece of property and you're putting down less than 20% barring some other things that can happen as far as uh, second mortgages to avoid mortgage insurance those kinds of things there are some some things out there that can be done to alleviate mortgage insurance but for most borrowers um, the mortgage insurance that's available now if you're putting down less than 20% is fairly reasonable and so um, if you have to have mortgage insurance that will also be calculated in that payment so depending on the product that you use depending on um, several different factors credit score down payment all those sorts of things that mortgage insurance premium will move around quite a bit we don't provide mortgage insurance uh, premium or we don't provide mortgage insurance we just simply connect borrowers with the companies that do provide that so um, we don't have any control over the rates of mortgage insurance um, and it just varies greatly depending on how much you put down credit score type of product etc but the big thing to keep in mind is if you're going to put down less than 20 percent and you're asking yourself and you're sitting down with your family and you're saying okay what's our budget what is our monthly house note going to be that monthly house note if you're putting down less than 20 percent make sure that you know that it includes your principal and interest your taxes your homeowner's insurance and any mortgage insurance that may be due um, and then um, you know in addition to that you have your homeowners um, association expense so if you have a homeowners association expense in addition just know that that's calculated in your qualifying we're going to counsel with it 
as your loan officer I'm going to counsel with you about monthly budget and how that impacts uh, your monthly budget but you'll pay that separately that's not paid through your loan so those are the parts of the of the uh, monthly mortgage payment and those are the things that you're going to want to talk with your loan officer about and make sure that you feel good about your monthly budget as we're getting you approved for a new house okay so we're now to section four or part four of this process so let's recap just a little bit in case you're just kind of jumping in at this point um, we're in the middle of a or in the beginning stages of a six-week um, program that we're doing that covers the five stages of the loan process so the very first uh, week we just kind of recapped what are the five in the first episode what are the five uh, sections of the loan process application pre-approval processing underwriting and closing those are the five main stages and then in the second week, our second episode, I went into the first step of that, which is application. We went into that pretty deeply as far as the different sections of the application. It's broken down into nine sections, and so we covered one, two, three, and four, and then sections five and nine in one uh, lump together because they're, they're shorter sections. Now we're into episode three where we're getting into that pre-approval stage a little bit more deeply and so during that pre-approval stage you're going to have several things that happen uh, first thing is we're going to get that full story on the loan application we've got to know where you've been working and living for the last couple of years um, and so we can start to put together a history for you and then that's how we'll know uh, how we can help um, and then we're going to do a, an analysis of your your debt and your income now each one of these stages at this pre-approval point are discussions and um, strategy with you and your loan officer to try and figure out what the best plan for you is. So you and I are going to sit down, we're going to talk about uh, what it is you're trying to accomplish, where you're trying to uh, have this end up. And so through this process, that's what's what the design of this part of the process is. Now, we'll get into some granular detail a little bit more in the processing underwriting stages of the loan process. So some of the backroom stuff that most of the borrowers, most of my clients, and most of you guys won't ever really see, uh, I want you to have an understanding and know about what is going on uh, in the background and how that process works, especially if you're a, a real estate professional, you're thinking about getting into the business professionally. Um, but for my clients that are going through the process and for most of you out there, we'll get into the detail of some of the, the things that happen in the in the guidelines behind the scenes um, to verify the income and to verify what we've uh, submitted to underwriting as the case. Um, but in this section, it's a little bit more um, of, a, of an idea and a vision. And so we're going to talk about one of the big sections or one of the biggest areas in purchasing home, and that is the down payment, where those funds can come from, how much you may need, what those questions look like in an application process. Um, and so uh, let's dive into it, but that's the section that we've gotten to at this point. We've, we've gotten your full application. We've analyzed a little bit of your debt and income. I just don't want you to be under the impression that that's a complete analysis where you're able to issue a credit decision at that point. At this point, we're identifying what all it is that we're going to need to verify and what to expect as we start to get into that loan file.
So we're at the section now. Uh, we've talked about your uh, income and debts. We've talked about your monthly payment and kind of how that's going to fit with your budget. And you know, we we have a couple of goals as as uh, as your loan officer uh, and as your lending team. And one of those is to get you from point A to point B. You know what it is that you're trying to accomplish. We want to make sure that you're able to get that done. However. That's just one of my jobs. My second job, and I tell people all the time, I have two jobs. First job is get you from point A to point B. My second job is to make sure that when you get to point B, that you're comfortable that you've gotten to a place that you're going to be able to manage and that is going to work well for you, so on and so forth. So when we talk about down payment, we talk about monthly payment, we talk about these things in this pre-approval process, then as we're going through these stages, you know, we're, you know, I uh, and the Shannon Wheeler Mortgage Team, you know, as your lenders, we're looking for, again, point A to point B. That's job number one. Job number two is make sure when you get there that it works for you and works for your budget. So as we're asking questions, we're trying to find out two things. One, what can we do for this borrower? Can I get this borrower the help that they're asking for? And then the second thing is, what is my borrower's life going to look like after they close? You know, because I've done thousands of transactions, and I've dealt, dealt with thousands of borrowers and thousands of families. Um, but for many of my clients, many of you, you're only going to do this maybe a handful of times. Uh, even my active investors still, compared to the number of transactions I've done throughout my career, uh, no one will do that many. And so, um, you know, it's one of those things where I feel responsible to ask on behalf of my borrower, if they've not thought about it, um, I know what's likely to happen. I know they're going to have to get used to electric bills that maybe they haven't had before. I know they're going to have maintenance that maybe they haven't had before. So I feel responsible and a responsibility to ask those things when I'm going through the process uh, on behalf of the process, but also on the behalf of the uh, f fiscal well-being of my borrowers. Um, I don't want my borrowers to call me six months after they've closed on their uh, new home and have any questions or concerns about how they're going to make the payments. That's it. That doesn't help anyone. Um, so when we get into the down payment discussion, basically we're going to find out if the down payment amount is is something that can be done and is can it be done and brought to closing from an acceptable source and then how do we go about proving or documenting that um, so first thing I'm going to ask my borrower is hey um, listen if you had to write a check today for down payment and closing costs to invest in a new property how much money would you have on hand to be able to invest? Now, the reason I ask that is because people don't understand the difference between down payment and closing costs right away. Um, it's more a matter of their quote-unquote cash to close, as we refer to it, which basically means most borrowers, again, even my experienced borrowers, most borrowers really want to know a couple of things. When can I close? What's my monthly payment going to be? How much money is this going to cost me? Now, in their mind, that's what they say. How much money is this going to cost me? So if you're out there, you're going to be thinking that same thing. How much is this going to cost me? Well, what we do is we translate that number 
into one figure, which is easy for borrowers to understand, and that is your cash to close. Now, your cash to close, meaning this is the amount of money that I'm going to need the day I show up to get my keys, that amount can vary wildly in the process. And what's going to make that determination is going to be many things, starting with your product type your amount of desired down payment, the amount of uh, down payment that you have the ability to provide according to the guidelines. Um, what is your desired monthly payment when you're finished and how does that impact what amount that you're going to put down? How much cash do you want left over after you buy your new house? So there's so many factors that go into that cash to close number, but for the purpose of this section and what we're trying to do here, just know that I'm going to try to ascertain what is the amount that you think you're going to need? What is the amount that you're actually going to need? What is the amount that you're able to provide? And from where do we provide or where do we plan to provide those funds? So this is going to be where you're going to be asked specific questions. Hey, um, Shannon, I've got um, $30,000 uh, saved up. Um, I've been working on for a few years and I've got that much money saved up. Okay, great. Do you have that in a savings account, in a checking account, in a retirement account? The reason that all those things become important, uh, and I have clients all the time that'll say, well, it's my money, why do you care where it came from? Well, we'll get into that a little bit more deeply as far as why we ask those questions and what has to happen for those things to be proven uh, correctly for us. But suffice it to say, in this pre-approval stage right now, I'm trying to identify any sources of funds that may not be allowed because that's going to radically change what direction we go with your loan file. Let me give you a good example. Let's say um, you say, well, Shannon, I've got $15,000. Okay. Do you have it in a checking account or savings account? Uh, no. Um, I've got it in cash at the house. Okay. In literal cash? That would be my next question. Do you mean actual cash money? And the answer is, yes, I don't like the banks. I don't like putting my money in the bank, so I've kept my money in cash at the house. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. That's not an acceptable source of funds to bring to a real estate closing. So that's when I'm going to jump in and advise you that we're going to need to get those funds and get those funds deposited and keep them on deposit for a period of time before underwriting will consider them to be an acceptable source of funds for down payment. So that's what we're going to try and get done in that section because we as loan officers, I as your loan officer, know that if you don't have that squared away, you're not going to close. So it's silly of me to not address it right away in that first pre-approval stage a lot of loan officers I've seen try to make it easy on their borrowers by not asking specific questions. That's not, that is going to make the application process feel a little bit lighter, true, but the trade-off for that is if you don't ask those specific questions and find out exactly what needs to happen in that stage, you're going to create a lot of stress for yourself, for your borrower, for the borrower's uh, sellers that they're uh, buying from, so on and so forth. So we go ahead, we address that up front. So it's not meant to put you in an uncomfortable position. It's not meant to be probing, um, but we definitely are going to do what we have to do for your best interest, which is let's have a clear, concise discussion about this cash to close amount uh, so that we can make sure we do the heavy lifting now. We'll have no problems 
when it comes time for underwriting and closing. Okay, we are ready to get into the final uh, part of this section. So um, we're on week three, coming to the end of week three, and we're going through a six-week series where we're going to talk about the five stages of the loan process. So the first week we introduced the, uh, the five stages of the loan process, which is the application stage, the pre-approval stage, the processing stage, uh, underwriting stage, and closing stage. So those were the, the five main uh, stages of the loan process. In uh, the second week, we got into the first uh, stage, which is the application. Went through every part of the application, uh, the nine sections of the application. Uh, and in the second um, week, or the second stage, which is week three, we're going through now the uh, pre-approval stage. And we've gone through uh, several of the um, pieces of that pre-approval process. It's going to be getting the full story, uh, doing an income and debt analysis. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, then we're going to talk about uh, monthly payment and uh, how that kind of factors into what you're currently doing and what you're going to be doing going forward. Um, we, then we talked about down payment, uh, sources of down payment, that kind of thing. And so, again, all of these are sort of high level. We'll get into some of the specific, de specific details of each one in later sections as we get into uh, assets. We get into these things specifically. But the first part of this series is designed to give you an overall view of the loan process and kind of some of the things that are involved. So, as we finish um, episode three and we're talking about the pre-approval process, the next thing that we want to discuss is the collateral type. So um, I'm going to use that word collateral for those of you that don't know or aren't used to that term collateral. It basically just refers to the type of house that we're going to finance. So again, we're dealing with residential mortgage uh, lending and so there are exceptions and there are different ways to get different things done but for the most part what we're what we're really talking about here is we're talking about getting a home loan or a mortgage loan put in place for residential property that people are just going to occupy and live. There's no other uses of the property, no commercial uses, those kinds of things. So the collateral type becomes important. And the reason it's, it becomes important is because not only does the collateral type or the security that you're going to put forward for your loan, that's really what you're doing. What you're doing is you're pledging 123 Lucky Lane um, in exchange for a loan in the amount of whatever amount that you borrow against the property. So that collateral type becomes very important and it's pretty simple to see why. If you're going to ask the bank to give you a mortgage loan for a piece of property, the bank is going to want to know that that piece of property, that collateral, is acceptable to them. It adequately secures the residence that, or um, adequately secures the loan that you're borrowing. So, for example, you obviously don't think it's a good idea for the bank to make a loan for $400,000 on a property that's only worth $200,000. You can see where that becomes a, a problem. Also, um, the different loan programs 
change or lo or loan prog different loan programs are available for different collateral types. It's not that the loans themselves are completely different, but the terms of those loans may change slightly based on the use of the property or the type of property. So let's go through a couple of those examples. And this is what we're doing uh, when we're going through that approval process or that pre-approval process. So when I sit down with you and we're making your plan for success, one of the things I'm going to want to find out is what type of property are you interested in purchasing? Because that's going to have an impact on what financing options are available. For example, if you are looking to purchase a manufactured home because the price of the manufactured homes are a little more affordable for the area that you're looking in and your budget, then that collateral type or that manufactured home is going to come with some different criteria than a regular stick-built house or a frame house. And so you're going to be looking at a situation where your interest rate may be slightly increased just a little bit or the amount of down payment that you need to make is going to be increased a little bit or the collateral uh, type may dictate credit score required to do a loan on that type of collateral. So you may ask yourself why is that? Why are there different loan products and different um, rates and things for different collateral types? And it has to do with the risk involved with each particular type of property. So, for example, let's say you're buying a duplex. Hey, Tommy Davidson, good to see you on here. If you're purchasing a duplex, then you're going to rent one side of that duplex, most likely. And, I mean, obviously, that's what you're going to be purchasing that for. Where, Well, if you're going to be renting one side of that property, or if you're going to be purchasing the property and putting renters in two sides to that property, then you're using that property not for owner-occupied purposes, but for investment purposes. When you're using a collateral type or a property type, whether it's a single-family residence, a two-family residence, if you're using that property type and or purchasing that property for investment pur purposes versus to live in yourself, then they are going to charge a little bit higher of an interest rate and they're going to require a little bit more money down. The reason for that is if you live at 123 Lucky Lane and that is your primary residence, that is going to be the thing that you take responsibility for first. It is actually where you live. If you're purchasing an investment property, then let's say, for example, you're a newer investor or experienced investor, and something goes wrong, something changes, something happens with your life plan, or the market changes, anything along those lines. Well, if you have an investment property that you've secured and given as collateral for a loan to the bank, then a couple things and this isn't always the case. I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but for the most part, an investment property is not going to be your number one priority if you found yourself in financial straits. You're going to take care of the place that you live, but you may let that investment property go back. Or you may let that property fall slightly into disrepair because you don't have the available funds to keep that investment property and keep it viable, keep it leased, and keep it in good condition. And so in those cases, and typically the idea that 
if you don't live at a at a place that you're probably not going to take as good a care of that home as you would your own home. So all of these are not absolutes and certainties. However, they are generally going to be why they charge a little bit more on interest rate or require a little bit more down payment, those kinds of things um, when you're purchasing investment property. So your collateral type can also be affected by your use of the collateral. So, for example, if you're buying 123 Lucky Lane and you're going to live at 123 Lucky Lane, 123 Lucky Lane has not changed. It is still a single-family residence with three bedrooms, two baths, a bonus room, and a garage. But let's say, for example, you come into my office and you say, Shannon, I'd like to buy 123 Lucky Lane, but I'm going to use that property as an investment. Okay, well now, 123 Lucky Lane, the collateral securing our loan, it has not changed. It's still the same property with improvements, same house type, same bedroom count, all of those things. It's still the same thing that it was. But your stated intention and your stated use for that property changes that collateral type now from it's still a single family residence, but it now changes it into a single family residence for investment purposes. So if you come into my office and you want to buy 123 Lucky Lane and you're going to live there, I'm going to have one set of criteria to give you a pre-approval and qualify you and one set of products to be able to use. If you come into my office and say, hey Shannon, I'd like to buy 123 Lucky Lane, but I'm going to lease that property out, then I'm going to be able to give that pre-approval to you, but it's going to come with slightly different terms. So some of the big collateral types that we pay attention to, most of what we do is going to be a single family residence, just a one single family uh, residence owner occupied. You can do one to four family, you can do two family, three family, four family, we can do manufactured housing, we can do rural properties, we can do townhomes, condos, all of those types of collateral are acceptable collateral types. We just have to make sure that once you've identified that collateral type or that use of that collateral, we match that up with the programs that, that match what you're trying to do so we can issue you a solid approval and get you out there right in that contract. Okay. On the next episode, we're going to get into the next stage of the loan process, which is going to be the processing stage. That's where we're going to go through a lot of the kind of ins and outs of what's happening behind the scenes, because sometimes people have things in the loan process that happen that, since they don't do loans all the time, don't know why those things are happening. And so it always often has to do with the processes behind the scenes to verify all of the information that we've collected in those first couple of stages. So you'll want to stay tuned. We'll get into uh, processing in our next uh, episode and uh, we look forward to it and we will talk with you soon.